Autism is a disorder of communication. So it's difficult for individuals with autism sometimes to communicate in a way where they're understood or they can advocate for themselves. In other ways, their communication is the most honest and genuine communication. It's funny because I feel like I live in the world of autism so much that when I leave the world of autism, I have to rethink how I speak. I can be much more honest and genuine in that world than I can in the mainstream world. It may be a disorder of communication, but there's also really a wonderful and genuine communication. I'm Tracy Spencer Walsh, and this is the It's Special podcast, a podcast for you to overhear my conversations with top professionals in the world of special needs and law and civil rights. We are curating information about special children's rights and distilling it into bite-sized pieces for all to enjoy. Today, we have Dr. Ivy Feldman joining us on our podcast, and I'm so excited to have Dr. Feldman. I have known, I have known Ivy since 2008, I think, is when I first met you. Wow. Yeah. So That's a long time. <laughs> it is a long time, and it's been so good. And one of the, Ivy and I were just talking about why? Why the podcast? Why now? And I was telling her how much I missed speaking with her because so frequently we would have seen each other in person down at the impartial hearing office in Brooklyn. And, <laughs> and just, in so many other places. And I events. Mean, yes. Yeah. It's been too long. At the school. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd come visit and... So it's been so long, and while we do get to chat on the phone from time to time, I thought this would be great. And really, one of the other reasons is that whenever I speak with you, I learn something new about our kids with autism. And I thought, well, I can share that with my team back at the office, but wouldn't it be nice for a whole range of people to be able to hear what you say so often and what you talk about and you talk about so passionately? Thank you. So tell us a little bit about yourself. I am a psychologist. That's probably first and foremost how I got into this field. I'm also the head of school and the executive director at the Keswell School. I've been there uh, since 2002, so it's coming on on 20 years for me, which is insane. When we started, I, I thought I would take this job for two years and I would see how it went, and I, I guess it went well. It's been a really good run, and it's been very exciting to see how things have changed and to see so many students grow up. It's been amazing. So I'm the head of school at the Keswell School, which is a school for students who have a diagnosis on the autism spectrum. You said that the Keswell School is for students with autism. And as you and I have discussed many times over the years, autism is a spectrum disorder. And where on the spectrum would your kids fall? Yeah, uh, we're a one-to-one school, as you know, Tracy. So our kids tend to fall more toward the moderate to severe end of the spectrum. They're students for whom the autism diagnosis leaves them with more things that they have to deal with. So it leaves them with a little bit more difficulty, with a little bit needing more support to help themselves. So they tend to have more communication problems. They tend to have more problems regulating them 
themselves. They tend to have more difficulty dealing with a, a regular school environment. So our environment is a very small environment. And so it's a specialized environment. I hate to say like moderate to severe because I, I feel like it's something that's so it's temporary. It's at a given time. It's something that they may start out with more difficulties due to their autism diagnosis, but they're capable of learning how to ameliorate those so that they're able to be in a less restrictive environment. Our goal is not to keep our students well, that um, is the point, right? The, the point is to support students with whatever challenges they present with in a way that is going to move them forward and help them make progress so that they keep moving and they're not forgotten about. And if they were to get the inappropriate interventions, we oftentimes would see regression or stagnation. Is that true? Absolutely. And we've seen, we take students in, we, we, our students range from 3 to 21. So we've taken students at all different points um, in their development. And it's never too late to learn. It's never too late to make progress. It's never too late to make significant progress so that you can go to a less restrictive environment. And that's always the goal. Our goal is to get our students ready to be active members in their community, which they're capable of. And however that may look. Yes. And however, <laughs> and that's important because it doesn't have to look a certain way. It just has to look to catering to people's strengths, whether Absolutely. they have autism or don't have autism. <laughs> is that right? Yes. And, and what would make them happy and what would give them an enriched life? That's the goal, for them to live a happy, enriched life where they feel important. And what would you say is one of the biggest misconceptions that you come up against when people's understanding of autism? I think a huge misconception is that they don't want to be part of a community. I think especially for a lot of our younger students who really can't communicate and don't know how to be part of the group, I think a lot of people say, well, they don't really want to interact. They don't want to be part of the group. And what I've seen in our community, we have a very small community at school, but our students are so happy to be part of a community. They have friends. They love their teachers. They have people that they, the nurse, they have people who they see all the time. And they like being part of that community. When we were closed during COVID and we were on Zoom, we had students pointing. Once we, some of us went back into the school building before the students came to get it ready. And the students were pointing and saying, I want to go there. That's and so beautiful. it's it, they do want to be part of a community. I think there's another misconception, and it's not really a misconception. It's true. Autism is a, a disorder of communication. So it's difficult for individuals with autism sometimes to communicate in a way where they're understood or they can advocate for themselves. But in other ways, their communication is the most honest and genuine communication. It's funny because I, I feel like I, I live in the world of autism so much that when I leave the world of autism, I have to rethink how I speak. I can be much more honest and genuine in that world than I can in the mainstream world. So it's really, it may be a disorder of communication, but there's also really a wonderful and genuine communication. 
Well, let's talk about that because I know we use the words disorder and disability, and sometimes I think even the way we phrase it seems to imply that there is something wrong, right? And so just let's back up a little bit, and I guess for lack of other words that we really have, certainly in the medical model anyway, how would you describe what a diagnosis of autism is? Oh, wow. That's a hard one. When you first get a diagnosis of autism, I I think about the parents and what that means to them and how difficult that is. I think for some parents, it may be a relief that they knew something was wrong and now they can begin to get help. And for other parents, it's thinking, my child will never be the child that I pictured. So I think a diagnosis first comes with a big emotional part. On a different, like a more practical level, it's something that will help you get your child the services that they need. It will open doors to the proper supports for them. And I think for our students as they get older, I've worked with students on learning, okay, this is a medical issue. I have a diagnosis of autism. I have to report that or I have to know that. And for students, it's interesting because I think that it doesn't affect them in the way that that you think it might. For them, I, I think also in that genuine way that they have, they think, okay, this is something that I have. It just means that I don't do some things well and I do other things really well. And for them, it it doesn't carry the weight that it does initially. I'm not a big fan of diagnosis. I understand the importance of it. Autism as a diagnosis itself, I mean, there are so many different kinds of, of challenges that individuals with a diagnosis of autism face, and they're very different. Autism can mean something very different. You can have language. You could not be able to talk. So it really, I I think it's an imperfect label, and it's a label, which, you know, carries its own weight. And this is just a thought that I I had. Have you seen, and I forget which streaming service it's on, Astrid? No. It's a French series. It's in the French language. And it's about this woman who is an expert criminologist, and she has autism. Oh, wow. And she can see the patterns That's that amazing. other people miss. Mm-hmm. And she is honest and direct. And when she sees something that doesn't line up, either professionally or in a personal situation, she'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. As somebody, you know, with the honesty of autism has. And... I think you would love oh, this. that's great. And I, I don't work, by the way, I do not work for any streaming service. I'm, I'm, not always, try, I'm, I'm not always tr- looking for new TV to watch. That's I'm not great. trying to plug a particular series at all, but I watched it and it's really, really well done. That's great. <laughs> Astrid goes to this autism support group and I think she goes once a week and in the group they're talking about Oh, I'm so exhausted from having been with all the neurotypical people today, <laughs> trying, so to, trying to figure out what they were talking about. <laughs> it's true, though. It's very different. That's great. Yeah. So anyway, that just popped into my mind. And then also circling back to what you were talking about with respect to getting that diagnosis. But I guess one of the other things that really positive things that comes out of that is that 
there's this whole now a level of understanding, right? A level of understanding perhaps for the person, depending at, at, at what age they're being diagnosed with autism and for the people in their life that it's like, oh, okay, that makes sense yeah. now. And, and, what, what, and what is it about a diagnosis that says, oh, okay, now it makes sense? I, and I think it's so complex also because for so many families, I see so many parents who have newly diagnosed children who feel, you know, did I do something wrong? You know, is this, I, I had a parent on the phone the other day and, and doing intakes, I deal with a lot of families that are just trying to wrap their mind around it for the first time. And I had a mother say, well, he's an only child. He wasn't around other children. It's heartbreaking for a lot of families that they really, a lot of parents, a lot of mothers, a lot of fathers feel that maybe they didn't do something right. They didn't catch it fast enough. They didn't see. And I I think that that's so sad and heartbreaking, the tremendous guilt. And what's your message to people listening who have felt that? Oh, I I wish that you wouldn't. It's not your fault. It's this is not your fault. This is something that you will learn to help your child. You will learn to provide the supports that your child needs and that your child can learn, your child can grow, that this isn't a diagnosis without hope. And what would you say to families and practitioners who may be listening when at school, Parents are seeing something, something that's not right, or my child is falling apart every time he or she comes home. Oh, well, we're not seeing that at school. Everything is fine, or he or she will outgrow it. Or, And parents know that there's something that's just a bit different, perhaps, than maybe what they've seen with other people's children, or, or they might have other children, and this is different. And They feel like they know that there's something different, but they're being told at the school that everything is fine. What would you say to those parents? I would say, Tracy, that's where you come in. (laughs) But I, I think that for parents, it's important always to go with your gut. I tell parents when you're looking at a school program, when you're looking at a placement for your child, the most important thing is can you see your child there? Can you see your child not only there, but can you see your child flourishing there? Can you see your child growing and being happy there? So if you feel that something isn't right, then something isn't right. And I think that's important for parents to hear today also, is that if you think that there's something amiss, you have the right to have your child evaluated, by the way, free of charge by your school district, I think that what happens with a lot of evaluations that are provided through the school is sometimes they'll say the child can't be evaluated. The child didn't participate in the evaluation. And I I think that they can participate in an evaluation. I used to do, before I was the head of school, I did a lot of evaluations as a psychologist. And I think that Every child can participate in an evaluation. If you have an evaluator who really takes the time to get in there and has the ability, there are a lot of people who don't know how to test children who have some challenges just participating in the regular standardized tests. But there is a way to test the limits. There are ways to get you more information rather than just saying the child couldn't participate. That doesn't really give you a lot of information. So when we, I guess, oftentimes when perhaps a psychologist, a school psychologist or an educator 
says that a child cannot be evaluated, that would be with particular types of testing instruments. Is that correct? Absolutely. Or in a certain environment or without certain supports. So there are always other things that can be done that will illuminate difficulties. That's good to know. And that's a a really good way for even me to hear that, even after all of these years, because sometimes I need to give that information to parents as to why perhaps they should seek a different evaluator to get a different look, different lenses, I guess, through which a child can be seen. And it's so interesting because without the right test, without the right examiner, a child can present very differently than they would with an examiner, a skilled examiner, using the proper testing. It really does give a lot of information and is very helpful. So let's just circle back a little bit about the type of work that you're doing and your school is doing with children with autism. And your school, the Keswell School, is a one-to-one ABA, Applied Behavioral Analysis, model. Tell us about Applied Behavior Analysis and how that germinated. It's been a long road. I feel like I I was training in graduate school at really a wonderful time to get into this field. It wasn't what I thought I would do. I didn't go into graduate school thinking I really want to work with individuals with autism. I wanted to work with kids. I wanted to be a psychologist. But I didn't know that this field even existed. And that was a time I was looking. I was In school, I needed to find a job that was on the weekends, and I was a terrible waitress. I made it one day. As a waitress, I'm not graceful. I really, I was, I was a nightmare as a waitress. It was very bad. I did just observe you having (laughs) a cup of tea that was spilling. Yes, yes, I'm very clumsy. I really, I was a very bad waitress. So I think I'm, I'm here because I was a bad waitress, maybe, (laughs) in part. So I, I found a job. It was a new therapy. It was called applied behavior analysis. You could learn it in a home program at that time. There are a lot of people who were, it was after Lovas came out with his wonderful study at UCLA that found that if children were given intensive therapy and scaffolding, they could learn skills and they could make significant progress cognitively. So it was using that kind of model of ABA. A number of home programs started up and they were looking for people to learn this new kind of therapy in home programs. And that's how I learned. I worked with a child who was three, who had significant challenges from his autism diagnosis. And we were in a a a 40-hour-a-week home program where we worked with him intensively. I went to Montessori school with him. We shadowed him at school. We taught him. And I, I got hooked because it was so exciting. It was so thrilling to try and figure out how are we going to teach this skill? How are we going to give him communication so that he doesn't exhibit these behaviors? How are we going to teach him to be in the classroom so that he doesn't just run to the corner with the blocks or the numbers? And it was thrilling to me that you could think all the time. There was always a puzzle. There was always a problem. And if you solved it the right way, then the child could learn and grow and be in their environment and be happy in their environment. So that's how I got started. 
ABA, Applied Behavior Analysis. I think that's what you asked me. I'm sorry I went off on a tangent. (laughs) No, it's great because I think a lot of people listening to this, it's describing probably a situation that they're in right now and they don't even know that this is available to them. So that was, I think, really helpful. ABA then was different. ABA now is different because it's become more controlled by insurance, controlled at, at that point, it was very hard to get anybody to pay for you to get ABA at home. And the rate th- that we were working at was different. We were graduate students working at a lower rate, and now it's become something that you can get through insurance, which is good, but it's also become a field where I feel like people can get taken advantage of as well, that you have to be very careful and also go with your gut on that. Because somebody has a BCBA or a degree, if it doesn't feel right what they're telling you to do with your child, it's good to get another opinion as well. There's nobody who knows all the answers. And I think as a parent, you also need to know that you have a a feeling for your child. You have an intuition. Your child should be happy. Even though ABA is hard and it's challenging and it's a lot of work, they should be happy. You just gave me chock full of questions to ask you with all of that because that was really great information. One thing I am going to say with respect to the insurance, a shout out to Lori Unum, who really worked, has worked very hard nationwide to have states approve health insurance funding for ABA. So, Lori, if you're listening, (laughs) you know, I I think the world of you and you have done really a great job on behalf of people with autism, children with autism, to get this covered to some extent. Of course, it should be to a greater extent, I know, (laughs) but it's progress and we're good. We're happy with progress. And I I think, Tracy, that the more you can get the word out for people, because still so many people don't know what they're entitled to. It, well, th- th- that is true, which is another reason why I wanted to do this podcast is because, as we know, there's just so much out there on the Internet. And how does one know? How does a parent know what is good information and what's not good information? And this is Really, one of the biggest reasons why I wanted to do this podcast also is because I wanted to curate the really good information for parents so they have it and they know what it is. So if they are going to do additional research on the Internet, perhaps we can guide them in a way that will really help their kids. I think that's amazing because there are so many claims and so many different therapies out there. And it's really hard to know because it's such an emotional thing that that parents will do anything to help their children, especially if you see your child not being able to communicate, not being able to talk. I know that, that parents would do anything to help their children. And so it makes them very vulnerable. It does make them vulnerable, which kind of brings us back to, you know, the selling of snake oil kind of concept. And one of the things that I often hear, Ivy, when I'm talking with parents who call me to see if I can help them is they'll tell me about their child and they'll ask me, do you know of any schools? 
And I always say I'm not an educational expert. I mean, I'm, you know, in the field of law, perhaps, but not in terms of I don't know your child. I haven't met your child, yeah. you know. So I'm very cautious about what I advise. But I do at least let them know what schools are out there mm-hmm. so that they can look at them. And sometimes I'll say, the Keswell School. You should have a look at the Keswell School. Oh, that's ABA. My my son or my daughter had ABA and it didn't work for him or her. And I'll say, well, there's ABA and there's ABA. Yes. So it really, you might not want to write off the whole intervention until you know whether or not you've already had quality ABA or not. Yeah, absolutely. With anything, with any kind of treatment, with doctors, with lawyers, with any kind of professional, there's variability, there's a good fit. So somebody may be a good therapist for one child, but not a good therapist for your child. There's also that component. We're all human beings. So that's part of it. But it also, I believe very strongly in ABA and in using behavioral principles to help students with autism increase their skills and decrease behaviors. But I'm friendly with people who run all different kinds of schools. And ABA may not be a match for everybody. They may need a different kind of school. But I think that if you look at the child themselves and you go with where they are, that ABA can be a very effective way of teaching. It can't be wrote. I re- that just reminds me. I used to teach also. I taught in an all-girls private school in Westchester. And I can remember as a new teacher being frustrated in the classroom about something and speaking with the, the head of the upper school. And she had this beautiful British accent. She'd say, Tracy, you have to remember, you have to meet the girls where they are. (laughs) And I think that's what you're saying. And that's the most important thing you can do in any kind of therapy. I do play therapy. I'm a psychologist. I think that you have to be with anybody where they are. And that's the best starting point. So how have things changed for your students and families since the COVID-19 pandemic? The pandemic was really, I mean, it was like nothing anybody has experienced. So it it really, for us, we're a one-to-one school. We're in person 40 hours a week. We run a really long day. And to go from that to being at home We were on Zoom for that many hours a week. We were one-to-one on Zoom, but our parents were having to support their children in the therapies. It was brutal. It was brutal for our kids who really couldn't understand why they weren't in school. They just were out of school. We couldn't get back into the building. School wasn't opening up. So it was very challenging. We came back last September. We came back in September 2020. So we came back as soon as we were able. And luckily, we're in a space where where we can be back fully. So we came back fully in September, but we were out for about six months. And is there any fallout from this that we're going to be fixing for a while to come? I think for our students, I think there's fallout in the larger way. There's fallout that we can't go out to vocational sites. There's fallout that we still haven't had a field trip. 
that we don't go to the grocery store to do grocery shopping, although that'll be coming soon. We're, we're introducing those things. But we lost so much. There's fallout in that our students who graduated during the pandemic didn't have necessarily their best graduation or their best months of school leading up to graduation. There's fallout that we don't even know. There's still fallout now. It's hard to find staff. I can't really do an open house. I have unvaccinated students in my lower school, and I I can't bring in a group of families to see the school in the way that I used to. So I think as an educator, it's brutal. It's been hard. It was brutal not being in school. I'm very grateful to be back in school, but I want more. And I should have said this at the outset, but my hat goes off to you and to all educators because you all have had such a difficult road to hoe and the amazing things that I have seen you and your staff and other educators doing around the city to educate kids under very difficult circumstances and the parents, I mean, it's just been a Herculean effort for everybody. And I just really want to acknowledge that. Thank you. Absolutely. It's been an experience. It really has been. <laughs> So moving forward, you know, if you had all types of superpowers, Mm. you do have lots of superpowers, (laughs) but if you had superpowers where you could, you know, make one thing particularly better Mm. for people with autism and their families, what do you think it would be? I think the biggest challenge that I've been seeing with with my students is the post-21 time. I currently have three of my graduates who are working at the school because I believe so strongly that having an enriched and important and exciting and joyous life should not end when school ends. And I think that for so many young adults who need still may need a lot of support, but even those who don't need a lot of support, it's a very rough transition. You're going from a time where you have a community and you have enriched activities and you have joy and you're growing and learning to a time where there isn't a lot. So for the students who turn 21, the choices out there are limited and it's heartbreaking. Well, I hope you will come back and speak with us again. And we can really, there's so much more for us to talk about. I want everybody who can't see us and is listening to this to just know that there's a word that Ivy used throughout this interview, which is the word joy. And Ivy is really the embodiment and personification of joy. She has been smiling the entire interview, and she loves what she does. That is true. Thank you so much, Tracy. Thank you, Ivy. Thanks for listening. Be sure to tune into our next episode. And please don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite streaming platform. And leave us a review. We love hearing from you.